When you think about the path to freedom for men and women suffering under slavery, that path often pointed north. But there was another place, a closer place. In the middle of the so-called slave societies of the South, where freedom was also a possibility. We'll be talking about that place and the people who came to be known as Maroons today with Dr. Marcus Nevius. This is too complicated for history. Our guest today is an associate professor of history at the University of Rhode Island and the possessor of one of the best names in history, Dr. Marcus Nevius. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Marcus. It is quite Roman, even though I obviously am not. <laughs> yeah, it's a very powerful name. <laughs> I, I appreciate what that, uh, I guess, uh, suggests on paper, at least. <laughs> um I had a, a little anecdote that I wanted to share with you because we um, interviewed, I spoke to you maybe like a month ago, but we, we met for the first time, around, like Probably a little bit so. over a month ago. Yeah. Full disclosure, I did not know anything about the Great Dismal Swamp prior to you know, being coming aware of your work, really. Like it was something that not something I, now I've seen it in a couple of things that I've, I had read, but at that point had not been really, wasn't really familiar with it. The swamp kind of looms there somewhere to the south of... Yeah, it's there. Um, But I never really thought about it. And you know that thing where it's like, you know, you get a new pair of shoes and then the only thing you can see around is other people wearing those pair of shoes? Yes. (laughs) That's whatever psychological phenomenon that is. Although I see that with cars. Cars, yeah, (laughs) cars, yeah. I was having a conversation with a screenwriter friend of mine who I've known for almost a decade now. Never had any sort of like discussion about her like family history or not. And then just so happens three days after we're talking, she goes, yeah, I'm descended from the, you know, these people that lived that, you know, sort of sought refuge in the Great Dismal Swamp. And I was like, I know what that is. Wow. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And wow. I look like the smartest person in the in, in that she had ever seen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like so I have paperwork. a question. I have yeah. a question. Yeah. Where did this chance encounter happen? Over Zoom. It was wow. just a catch-up session. She's a friend of my wife and I, and her her husband or her partner and her are good friends of ours. And and we were just you know catching up, talking, and she was asking me about work and stuff like that. And she was like, you know what? Like my family dates back to like, you know, pre, you know, the 1600s here. And then we started talking about her family history. Turns out she's a mix of enslaved African, Native, and then um, Scottish, European, I think. A couple different European. Yeah, she's like this whole like amalgam. And then uh, now is from her family's located in Kentucky, like in uh, in Appalachia. That's so interesting. I bet she's she's aligned with the Melungeons. I, I I didn't get too deep into it with her, but I did actually, you know, post a podcast. I would love to introduce you to because <laughs> it was she's very interested in this and has actually talked to some other historians that have worked on the populations that she is actually descended from. I would love the connection. Yeah. But weird phenomenon. And the Great Dismal Swamp is something that I genuinely think is one of those things that w- is overlooked in our own country's history uh, as far as the importance the significance of it could you explain to our audience a little bit about what it actually is yeah sure so the great dismal swamp is essentially a huge tidal marsh that was about two thousand miles of of land square uh in the southeastern region of virginia northeastern north carolina and several counties including uh the legacy norfolk counties the legacy princess Anne county which is today uh virginia beach uh, Nansman County, the Legacy County, and then several North Carolina counties. I never get them all, but I always remember <laughs> Gates, Perquimans, uh, and Chowan among the three that uh, appear in, in my research regularly. And so in the 18th century, the Great Dismal Swamp becomes sort of ground zero for all manner of 
Virginia land speculators who uh, began encroaching on Native American territory, of course, uh, to claim space in what ultimately becomes a 40,000 acre uh, land claim that is eventually patented to the Dismal Swamp Company. Uh, the Dismal Swamp Company is established in the 1760s, and it had on its roster uh, a list of famous people, including one George Washington, who essentially start the first slave labor camp uh, in the swamp. They called it Dismal Plantation. Uh, and the first point of access into the swamp, uh, which is attached to Dismal Plantation, they call Dismal Town. And it has this really cool natural lake, one of two Virginias, one of only two Virginia natural lakes. Lake Drummond in the center, which is no more than uh, 10 feet uh, deep at any one point and uh, several miles in circumference. So today it's a really beautiful um, natural landscape that's preserved mostly by the United States uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, with a small sector of the swamp also preserved by the North Carolina State Park System. Can you explain why it's called dismal? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Observers who didn't necessarily appreciate having to cross it (laughs) saw it as this terribly dark, dismal, awful place. And to some degree, to be fair, um, they didn't necessarily they weren't necessarily wrong. Uh, It's inhabited by all manner of arachnids and and insects that will bite you and leech upon you and all these other sorts of things. Uh, but they cast it in the 18th century, men including uh, William Byrd uh, II, uh, in the early 1720s, really began casting it as this really dismal place that was just impenetrable, uh, even though Native Americans had regular passed through it. Um, <laughs> and so for them, it was more of a geographic challenge than it was the natural landscape of beauty that even today we can see. It wasn't like a marketing ploy to like get the pri- get the price down on the land. <laughs> I have not seen that in the records, but I would not be surprised either. <laughs> it sounds like you've been there. So I'm imagining you traveled there during your research for your recent book. I have. So I spent um, a month entering the swamp every day uh, wow. in 2013 in, in May and early June of 2013 with a field school out of American University, uh, which was training undergraduates to uh, dig in the peaty soils of the hummocks, which are these landforms that rise above the water table of the tidal swamp. Um, And that was the bulk of my experience uh, going into the swamp uh, as summer was beginning to descend upon Virginia. Uh, So the heat and the humidity were rising by the day and the wonderfully powerful spring storms sometimes uh, caught us by surprise and other times kept us in our base camp, which was up in Smithfield. Uh, But then I just visited recently, a couple weeks ago, I drove in uh, from a Western access point to Lake Drummond because it's been several years uh, since I've been there. This was this past July. And I'll admit where in 2013, I was much braver and doused in all manner of, of insect repellent and covered from head to toe so that there were no entry points into my body as much as I could cover them. Uh, in July, this past this past July, I stayed in the truck. <laughs> but I did get out for a couple of moments at the lakeside because it was, the lakeside is kind of safe with regard to the insects. But uh, that driving in and, and going out, I wanted no parts of the actual swamp. So the environment's still pretty <laughs> similar to what they would have experienced back then at least actually actually at least insect wise (laughs) in terms of the the flora well in in terms of the insects yes uh in terms of the flora and fauna it's a little bit different because it's been ground zero of significant logging uh companies efforts which began in the antebellum period well they ticked up i should say in the antebellum period and they really took off after the civil war up into the early 20th century such that just about all of the old growth pines and cypresses were logged and milled and sawed out of existence. And so now the swamp is characterized by new growth uh, trees that are um, frankly a wider distribution of different species, tree species. And also that same postbellum period witnessed into the uh, World War eras, 
an expansion, a significant expansion of the ditching and canal infrastructure in the swamp too. So you have to read the swamp's landscape with this idea that after the 1860s, it changed considerably. And thus it differs <laughs> from what uh, people in the early 1800s would have would have experienced. And, and just to clarify for our listeners, so what Marcus is describing is the uh, like a, comp- a land speculation company that was looking to develop property, essentially. And we always generally think of that as like, oh, it was colonials looking west for expansion. But this wasn't one of those scenarios. This was actually like south. It, 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 it's not far from modern day DC. It's like, a, you know, it would have been right in their own backyard. Uh, so just to, just for some perspective that not all of the colonies like on the seaboard were, you know, fully developed in the same way where they were sort of interspersed and dotted with areas where, you know, that were seen as relatively impassable or not developed at the time. Was that company successful? That's absolutely right. Um, with regard to the Great Dismal Swamp being sort of this proximate frontier uh, for people in Virginia, uh, especially in the pre-Revolutionary War and immediate aftermath of the Revolutionary War, the war sort of disrupts all manner of things. But the first version of the Dismal Swamp Company actually did not succeed at its initial ambitions. In the 1760s, Washington and others were actually interested in establishing a rice and wheat and hemp plantation, essentially, that they envisioned anyway, uh, come online and be at least some form of competition for the much larger rice plantations in the Carolina and Georgia Low Country and the Sea Islands. Uh, but the Dismal Swamp geography was not well suited to that at all. And the initial group of enslaved people that they forced into the swamp uh, for the purpose of rendering a rice plantation in the swamp didn't really engage <laughs> that ambition much at all, at least as the records reveal. And then the war happened, and the war was a major, major uh, context of disruption. Of course, George Washington goes on to be a Washington of fame, and his favorite brother, John Augustine Washington, is, is essentially left overseeing uh, Dismal Plantation, but even he is called away to, uh, I believe it was Westmoreland County, uh, to organize colonial resistance there. And by the early 1780s, Dismal Plantation is really lurching along as enslaved people are generally under minimal oversight, if any at all. Uh, and it's sacked in July 1781 by a detachment of Lord Cornwallis's raiding uh, forces, which are marching northward from middle North Carolina uh, through Petersburg into Richmond. They uh, head east because, of course, the Dismal Swamp is proximate and they're, of course, aware that they can get supplies there. And they also carry off 27 enslaved people on July 22nd when they leave the swamp, leaving only the aged and infirm, as they said, there. And so by 1785, Washington divests himself of all of his interests in the Dismal Swamp Company, and it passes to a new generation of Virginians who frankly, compete with themselves. They, the Dismal Swamp Company, and smaller family-centric outfits that begin claiming uh, parcels of land either within the original 40-acre plot or on the fringes of the 40-acre plot, uh, generally in Nansaman County and Gates County on the western side of the swamp. And it lurches upon, uh, it continues lurching on. The company divests themselves of the original group of enslaved people by about 1804, and they transition to hiring, by way of annual contracts, uh, enslaved people from various enslavers after 1804. And then the Dismal Swamp Company uh, is reorganized to become the Dismal Swamp Land Company in 1814. And it persists as essentially a company that uh, sources the swamp's trees uh, from the 1790s until it closes in 1871. Gotcha. Oh, and just... To be clear, Marcus did air quotes on the word on the word hiring. The enslaved population was not the people getting paid. Right. It was the people who were there enslavers. Absolutely. <laughs> that were the, the receiving term, the funds. Yeah. The term hire is the actual term that they used in the records and hence the air quotes. Right, 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 right. Just just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, an important point of clarification, to be sure. Lest anyone get confused. Absolutely. No one was being paid that worked oh. at all. 
Well, the enslavers were being paid were being by paid. Paid. Yeah. to exploit. Uh, and actually, this is a good point of clarification. The enslavers uh, who actually owned, air quotes again, uh, enslaved people who were leased to the companies, they were being paid by on the basis of these annual contracts in exchange for putting the enslaved laborers to work and ensuring their safety, uh, sometimes by actual insurance contracts too. And they exploited whatever labor they could uh, wrest out of these enslaved people to almost no benefit at all of the enslaved people themselves. There are a few instances, such as with the life of Moses Grandy uh, in the 1820s, where he's able, by virtue of what was then called overwork, able to take on extra labor uh, and then to draw some of the uh, remuneration from that extra labor, although he also had to pay that to his enslavers too. Uh, So there's these really complicated levels of profit that generally accrue uh, to the companies after they pay their expenses. So speaking of complicated, it's strange because I live in Virginia. I've lived in Virginia for a while. And when I think of Maroons, I think of Jamaica, because that's really where, where I've heard about them, much more than just down south in the state I'm living in. So I do want to shout out the title of your book is City of Refuge, Slavery and Petite Marinage. And I've read about Maroons. But I'm wondering, can you explain to our listeners what maroons are, but also the difference between petite marinage and grand marinage and what exactly these things mean? Absolutely. Uh, So to the first question, who were maroons? Uh, Maroons essentially were enslaved people who resisted by escaping into landscapes that were proximate to slave societies, claiming space in these landscapes and ultimately defending these landscapes against any sort of incursion by colonial officials or early state or early Republican officials, uh, such that they were able to establish either short-term communities or long-term communities in these land spaces, right? And so uh, scholars dating to the 1960s have generally sought to understand these varying contexts for marinage, the uh, active form of being a maroon, by the terms petite or grand, uh, generally coming out of the French, of course, but small or large for those of us who have an appreciation for English. (laughs) 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 Uh, And essentially where, where there were small groups of Maroons who persisted in the landscape but were not essentially able to secure some kind of treaty or other form of, of in the Western uh, tradition of sovereignty, some other form of recognition of the space that they claimed. Uh, we have these spaces that are generally known as colonies of petite marinage. Mm-hmm. And then in spaces where we have larger communities that were in many cases able to, or in some cases, I should say, there weren't many, but in some cases they were able to secure these uh, treaties in the context of, of Western uh, sovereign treating, I should say, Uh, We generally have spaces of grand marinage on the one hand, or on the other hand, in in the context of imperial warfare, uh, where large communities, large groups of enslaved rebels existed in marinage. We have space for that, too. And so ultimately, um, historians and other scholars, uh, really anthropologists who have done really cool stuff, like go to descendant maroon communities and live there and interview them. Um, oh, wow. Have established this understanding, right? And so Jamaica always comes to mind because Jamaica is an island that is 400 miles square, but is really very much characterized by its inland mountainous geography and topography uh, right. into which groups of, on different parts of the island, enslaved people fled in the late 1600s and in the early 1700s where they established maroon towns uh, that ultimately, at the close of the first maroon war between 1729 and uh, 1740, uh, they were able to establish maroon towns that still to this day, there are a number of them, have maroon descendants who have long lived in the Jamaican mountains. Uh, In other contexts, such as Suriname, um, in a context of war in the Dutch imperial context uh, of the 1760s, on the heels of the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, Maroons were able also to claim uh, land spaces there. But marinage actually traces to the earliest instances of colonization back in the late 1500s 
Sir Francis Drake, oh. for example, uh, encountered maroons on the Panama Isthmus uh, in the 1580s and the 1590s. But in spaces where small groups of people in Maranage uh, were not able to claim such land space with these sovereign claims, but still they claim the space and resistance, such as the Great Dismal Swamp, uh, we have a context for Petit Maranage. That's such an interesting dynamic between the geography because you know the thing that made jamaica viable for those communities is the, you know, the fact that they're mountainous uh, like there's that's such a neat intersection between economy like western european traditional lifestyles that they were like those kind of agricultural plantation settings that they were sort of building out where they you know they could not operate in these spaces that were more challenging geographically but like you said it's not actually uh, that, oh, the Great Dismal Swamp was impassable. The native peoples in the area had been using it to traverse it all the time. It was just the methods by which you, you know, uh, colonials and by descendant Europeans approached, like, hey, this is how we deal with land, just didn't work. And it creates these little safe spaces where people can sort of operate on the fringes. That's a, kind of a neat intersection of a couple different ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the the, the most salient comparison, I think, is to really think about that 18th century context for uh, creating well-patterned towns or well-organized plantations by comparison to everything else, which is essentially called wilderness or impassable or threatening and the like. And so the, the Virginia South Side is actually a pretty cool uh, microcosm example because you have what essentially becomes downtown Norfolk where merchants who are engaging in an Atlantic commerce carve out this really small, uh, essentially urban space that has neatly patterned streets. Um, and just several miles down the road from them is this gigantic swamp where much of the region's wealth is actually drawn, but it's also considered to be essentially untamable. Because just as quickly as you can cut down the trees or the vines with the passage of a new season, they grow back unless right. <laughs> you're in there hacking over and over again or you actually reclaim the land fully by draining it. Mm -hmm. uh, draining enterprises uh, were haphazard at best before the Civil War. Do you, uh, could you describe a little bit about potentially some just to bring it to life a little bit? You know, if there's any particular descriptions of the Maroon communities, like any people uh, whose names or stories that might yeah. might be interesting to connect with or uh, that would sort of serve as examples for, for the communities that were in there? Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. Um, so as early as the 1760s, there's evidence of several men named Tom escaping from Dismal Plantation, right? This is the mid-1760s. Uh, and at least two, if not all three, uh, remain on the lam uh, throughout the Revolutionary War period uh, and into the early 1780s. And those of us who study the American Revolutionary War era tend to think of the process of Black freedom in this era as a process of making rel relatively finite decisions, right? The British come, you flee to British lines, and then you're re evacuated in the wake of the, the war in the 1780s. But at least two people named Tom never leave. Hmm. They are hiding in different parts of the swamp or and or being aided by at least one Quaker community on the western fringe of the swamp as they hide out. And the best way that I've lately imagined explaining this, especially for audiences broader than, than the, the academy, whatever that means, um, is to think about the Great Dismal Swamp as a space that's a little bit larger than the state of Rhode Island, a little bit smaller than the state of Delaware. And as you drive through these present day states, you have some spaces that are a little bit more highly developed, like uh, we'll take Delaware for an example, because it's closer to you. Wilmington in the North, which is this urban center of the city. And then a series of farms and small villages before you get to Dover, which is a, a mid-sized, smaller town, but uh, an urban space nonetheless. And then you get into the rest of Delaware, which is essentially rural farms in small villages. The Great Dismal Swamp was very much comprised as this sort of geography, especially by the 1830s. If you uh, take, for example, the larger slave labor camps in certain sectors of the swamp, which uh, might have employed or 
forcibly employed uh, several hundred enslaved people at a time by comparison to the western fringes of the swamp or the southern fringes of the swamp where much smaller outfits uh, numbering no more than maybe 25 uh, enslaved laborers might have been put to the purpose of cutting out a much smaller path of this uh, part of the swamp. And then there's these smaller uh, groups or communities of people engaged in Maranash who inhabit more distant hummocks uh, and who are essentially connected to the slave labor camps from which they draw most of their supplies and their sustenance. But they never concede either the ground that they claim or the, the relative modicum of freedom that they're able to engage so long as they remain in the most remote parts of the swamp. And so it's this really rich landscape of resistance that could be exemplified by several people named Tom in the 1760s. Or on the other end, when the swamp becomes much more developed relative to the pre-revolutionary war period, but in the late 1820s uh, and the late teens, I should say, too, when uh, people like Moses Grandy are enslaved by various enslavers and either leased out to or privately sent into the swamp to engage these uh, slave labor camps, forcibly, of course. And the really cool story that I draw from uh, Moses Grandy's uh, slave narrative of his experience, which was published in London first in 1842 and then republished in Boston in 1843, which is another uh, part of the story altogether. Um, But Moses Grandy describes spending nearly a year in a very small single-person camp, essentially, which is uh, largely characterized by a small shelter fashioned of essentially tree litter and perhaps sawdust that he lays upon on night to keep the insects off, at least to create a layer between he and the ground where the insects inhabit, uh, recovering from rheumatism because Lake Drummond's waters are highly acidic and they were very much rumored then to have significant healing powers. And another story, too, for what it's worth, uh, some of the land speculators actually also try to claim space along the shores of Dismal Plantation to try to create resorts. There are a couple of efforts to create resorts of a sort, uh, and one of which becomes a hotel which tries to position itself as the way station from the northern or southern ends of the swamp or the eastern and western ends of the swamp, where people can spend a night or two as they pass through uh, this land space that takes essentially a day or more to cross. Those efforts don't really do very well, (laughs) but at least it gives us a a broad sense of the swamp's uh, human history and its intersections with its geography. So were all these Maroons men? Because you're you're mentioning male names and that makes sense because, you know, women may have been more domestic and were were they in the labor camps? Was it mostly men? Um, Who were these Maroons? You know, the 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 question of who the Maroons were broader than the few examples that we can generally touch upon in the records is the hardest to answer. But the direct answer to your question is no, they were not all men. Mm -hmm. There is trace evidence of several women who were among the first uh, group of enslaved people dispatched forcibly to Dismal Plantation in in the 1760s. And I keep referring to the 1760s because it's fresh on my mind right now as I really try to think of my next project that ambitiously I hope to be able to do more with this community of enslaved people because that's really what they were. But Mm -hmm. it's also the hardest thing to, to do as an historian. Setting all that aside, there were at least five women who were dispatched to Dismal Plantation with the first group of enslaved people forcibly sent there, and at least two children. Um, oh, wow. The total number of people there was uh, 54 or 55. So they're, of course, if we're thinking proportionally, a, a smaller proportion of the group that's there. And that does sort of align with the longstanding historiographical consensus that the types of labor required of enslaved people in the Dismal Swamp would have been generally thought to be better performed by men. But uh, the, the the initial group of women were sent there in part because <laughs> even the earliest proprietors of the Dismal Swamp Company knew that it was a losing prospect to send a group of men into the swamp uh, without at least some family members, we can assume, uh, because we do know that Colonel Burrell, Nathan Burrell, sent Jack and Venus into the swamp, 
who by 1771, according to other evidence, including slave runaway advertisements, were known actually to be a couple to be married. So we don't know if they actually forged their earliest bonds at Dismal Plantation several years before, but we do know that uh, when they escaped from Colonel Burrell in 1771 from his property, that they were uh, a couple. And we also know that uh, by 1765, 1766, the proprietors of the Dismal Swamp Company are also screaming that even more women need to be sent into the swamp because the other men who are there are raising bloody murder um, (laughs) and (laughs) literally refusing to do uh, any of the labors that, of course, uh, the proprietors would force upon them. And the proprietors thus believe that sending more women into the into the swamp might compel the enslaved people to actually do the forcible labor that they weren't trying to do anyway. <laughs> so sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. What you just said brings up an interesting point that I think is in, uh, for a general audience, but I just know just for me, as you know, someone who's interested in history, but I have no formal education uh, as a historian, my general perception of slavery was that coercion, forcibly so, was the primary function of, I think the general depictions of slave, we, we see of, of not, it's not a narrow one because it's, it's relatively accurate as far as, you know, the brutality of cotton fields in the 1800s, um, where we're talking about chain gangs and whips and things out in a, a, like along a very, doing a very particular task. But like you said, they're like, oh, bringing in women will help them do things. There was a, it wasn't, not to say that it wasn't as brutal because it absolutely was, but there is more subtlety to what the relationship or dynamic was between people who were enslaved and the people who were trying to get them to do work. Uh, sure. That being an over, direct overseer or the person who was their enslaver. Like it's, it's just something I'd like to, it was enlightening for me to learn about that sure, dynamic sure, sure. like people didn't always just want to beat people like that wasn't necessarily the primary mode or even the best method to get people to do things sure sure i would i would i would agree but i would add that over time in the dismal swamp the story shifts a little bit uh particularly in the most uh in the largest slave labor camps right and so it's really on in in some ways and though I, I haven't studied the Deep South closely, I would suspect that in the earliest months and years of establishing cotton plantations in the Deep South, we might find a similar level of complexity, right? I leave that to my friends who, right, who right, studied right. King Cotton. Yeah, uh, I'm generalizing do much a lot. more of that. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm not really pushing back against that. But what I am trying to say is that to read Moses Grandy's narrative of his experience, for example, is to read the narrative of a very brutal existence. But you're, you're right. It's not the pervasive story of punishments as much as it's a combination of a specter of punishments on the one hand and the brutality of, of working essentially in a swamp in the summertime uh, every year where the yellow fever, for example, is as as terrible as it was in the cotton kingdom but it's it's much more prevalent in the dismal swamp because you have yellow flies all over the place 
Um, actually, I can't really say that either because there are swamps in the lower Mississippi River Valley that are probably worse. So I should retract that. But anyway, you get my drift. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not fun. <laughs> no. It's, it's a, no, not a fun place to be working. The story, the story of force and coercion needs to be centered, uh, even as we, we sort of looked to the gradations and the variations, and we looked to the lessons that Black resistance actually uh, asks us to foreground as well. And that is the story of resistance is not just a story of response to violence. It's also a, uh, it's also a, a creative story of negotiation and accommodation and, and of, of fear that operates on multiple planes and in both directions. Yeah, that's, that's well put. That's interesting. Right, yeah, and I, I think what, what you're talking about, Isaac, is something that I think a lot of historians of um, enslaved populations research, which is um, the everyday agency of display pushing back, but doing so in an everyday way that is not as dramatic as running away. So even pretending to be sick, not working as hard as you really could. And so I think what you're saying, and, and, and Marcus, what you're talking about is this ability to affect your own life as an enslaved person, no matter how small. And so we like to we like to focus on that because we like to, um, and by we, I think I mean scholars of enslaved populations. Marcus, you can <laughs> correct me oh, if I'm sure. wrong. Um, that these are human beings that had, even if it's a tiny bit, they had some control over their lives. That's um, right. And so that's what... Yeah, I think the, the image that I have in my head that is not deep enough is a complete and absolute stripping of autonomy and, right. and, and agency, right? Like, and that is, well, that certain situations were like that. It does shortchange all the work that was done to make these lives livable because people did live them. Um, right. you know, so, That's right. Yeah. It's just an important thing to, to think about. Um, yeah, and it is too complicated for history. Yeah, that is quite literally the name of the show. Um, just to change the topic just slightly, I actually, I, I really got to get down there. I, I think I harp on this every time we talk to a historian that has a particular focus in a region. I've said this to our audience, they're going to hate me at some point for, for, for repeating this over again. But you're probably within two hours of something really interesting. No matter where you yes. live in the country, you're probably a drive away, a weekend day trip, from something really interesting that would be enlightening for you about our country's history, your history, your region's history. Um, but I really got to get down there because I, I can't in my head picture what you're describing really in the least bit. The, the What keeps popping in, I don't know if, Lynn, I don't know if you watch cartoons at all. I don't know, Marcus, if of you course. watch cartoons at all. <laughs> um, does it? The image in my head, there's a cartoon on Nickelodeon that was from the mid 2000s, mid to late 2000s called Avatar The Last Airbender. And the picture in my oh, wow. head that I have <laughs> of this is a place in the show called The Swamp where they they go in sort of like this dense place and there's a population of people there that they didn't know existed, that they didn't know that could be living there, whatever. And because there's a slight overlap in those themes, that's the only thing that I picture in my head whenever we're talking about I this. would have to look up that cartoon, <laughs> but I suspect it's spot on. <laughs> well, and for myself, and I think Isaac, you'll appreciate this because I'm actually referencing a movie. Usually that's your role. Oh, there you go. But the, the, the movie Free State of Jones. Yes. That's, that's what I'm imagining in my head right. because... Is that sort of like, I mean, because they go off, they're in this swamp, they create a community. That's definitely um, a better reference. In mind, there are people <laughs> who live there can control water with their minds. <laughs> so it's a little different. Yes. Uh, yes. To, to Lynn's credit, although I, I do appreciate the creativity of the Avatar cartoon, Free State of Jones is actually set in a very similar geography in the time period in which the Great Dismal Swamp is okay. also a space of Marinage too. <laughs> the circumstances are are a bit different, of course, right. because Free State of Jones needs to have a sort of rider attached to it that the Matthew McConaughey um, white savior thing is to be very carefully contextualized. Um, but <laughs> I should also add that Gugu Mbatha Raw is hands down my favorite actress. Um, and she does, I think, an, an excellent job of representing how enslaved women or free women, in her case, 
uh, engaged this space too, and some of the many various complicated decisions that they faced yes. regarding family, regarding love interest, regarding uh, what it meant to uh, have this attachment to people who had to hide in the swamp because of the circumstances of slavery, regarding the proximity, frankly, of, of the state around the swamp, which I think has very good parallels in Virginia too. So I think then the question is, when are we going to have the movie about the Great Dismal Swamp? You know, I did, <laughs> I did talk to someone who is thinking about a movie. I don't oh. know where he, where he is along this. Is, this conversation <laughs> happened maybe a year ago now, or maybe even a year and a half ago. Uh, but I did talk to someone who is uh, working on a script. So I don't know where he is with the project. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we know a guy that wrote a book about it. That- oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, if there's anyone who wants to do something with that, I mean, I guess they, I, I have to direct them to the press or whatever, according to my contract. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Marcus, I just wanted to bring up um, as we're like coming to the end of our conversation, something we talked about um, in our pre the first time I met you. This doesn't have to do with the Great Dismal Swamp, but does have to do with a concept that I think is overstated. Bringing talking about the themes of the show. Um the idea of slave societies and society with slaves this has to do with more of you being a professor in Rhode Island than yes and, it, and I brought I used those terms in our previous conversation and then you stopped me yes uh, could you could you tell the audience why you stopped me because I think it's a it's a really interesting thing that is I've seen in a couple others more modern scholarship about the era yeah sure but uh, I would love to yeah talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So Isaac, first of all, let me say the very next time I interview with you on something, I will finally remember to research the sociologist who we should credit first with this um, binary slave societies or uh, societies with slaves, slave societies, societies with slaves, right? But the historian, the late Ira Berlin, actually becomes famous for taking up this binary and engaging with it in the way that historians often do when social scientists start playing in, in our dirt, right? Um, <laughs> so the, the, the binary essentially sought to explain for generations that, uh, or, or for students 50 years ago until about very recently, until about 10 years ago, how we might understand the difference between parts of the North American continent and perhaps beyond, where the economy was so dependent upon slavery that ultimately it just made sense to define these regions as slave societies by comparison to other parts of North America and beyond, where slavery was, according to this binary, more ancillary, distant or where the implements of these other regions were less directly tied to slavery and more directly tied to uh, whatever else that the that a scholar or a student might make the case for. But very recently, scholars include including Christy Clark Pujara, whose book Dark Work actually characterizes very well the history of the business of slavery in Rhode Island's history, uh, have asked us to reconsider this binary because uh, it obscures as much as it sought to sort of define, right? So for example, if we take a look at the state of Rhode Island, uh, Rhode Island slave traders operating in the 18th century Atlantic world were probably the most prominent slave traders in all of North America. And so you can't define Rhode Island by the terms of a slave society, because the other side of that coin is that slavery was fading in Rhode Island by the time of the American Revolution. And the agricultural regions of Rhode Island had much smaller plantations than uh, southern slave societies that were defined by their plantations. So the, the, the logic went, Rhode Island's economy was much more diverse than, say, South Carolina's. And so Rhode Island was a society with slaves because enslaved people lived there, right. but slavery didn't define Rhode Island. And South Carolina was a slave society. But when you look at Rhode Island's connections to slavery, yes, from the Rhode Island slave traders, the rum, the the famous rum men of New, Newport, to the financiers of Providence and Bristol, to the actual enslavers in what we call here South County, uh, what was then called the Narragansett Country, whose slave labor-driven plantations literally provided cheese and horses for the Caribbean islands, 
uh, you don't really that 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 slave societies uh, societies with slaves binary tends to fall apart, and that kind of understanding of the history can also be applied elsewhere, like Long Island, uh, which had a very high concentration of enslaved people in New York's history, or New Jersey, which essentially did not outlaw slavery until a constitutional convention in 1856, and or depending upon which historian's view you take, the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1865. And similarly, too, we can look to other places like Kentucky, uh, which are defined by slavery, but also have uh, these interesting pockets of interracial cooperation in the mountain hollows, much the same as Jamaica. Well, not the same as Maroonage in Jamaica, but a a context where uh, the the race is mixed more so than elsewhere. And the binary essentially is untenable. And so in the last 10 years or so, that binary has generally fallen apart under scrutiny. Uh, And although we owe a great intellectual debt of gratitude to the late Ira Berlin and to those who inspired him, um, I think we see it quite differently now. So as long as we're asking historian type questions, a question I have for you, because I'm just I'm a historian and I'm a huge nerd. But I think this is something that our, our listeners will be interested in is you have these obscure individuals how are you learning about them? So what sources are you using so that you actually have names? You know, we think of George Washington. He wrote everything down. You know, he has, has records. We don't have birth certificates, marriage records of Maroon Camus. So how are you finding out about them? Yes. Yes. So thank you for that question, Lynn, because it <laughs> is the bane of of scholars' existence, those of us who who, who try to write rich histories of enslaved people's lives. Um, Mm -hmm. But we generally look to a wide range of sources. Runaway advertisements are a major source base for historians of the enslaved, because even though they they need to be read with great care, Mm -hmm. um, contextualized properly, uh, and also understood as efforts to enforce slavery, right? All of these things matter. Uh, They also reveal very rich descriptions and very short snippets of people like the Toms that I mentioned earlier, uh, which one particular runaway advertisement for one of the Toms mentions that he might be identified by his country marks. Uh, Country marks being the scars that are intentionally impressed upon enslaved people's skin in West Africa, or not enslaved people's skin, I should say West African societies uh, tend to use scars, uh, at least in in the early modern period, uh, to identify ethnic belonging, uh, to identify cultural difference. Uh, We also can read from these runaway advertisements, naming practices and the like, Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of understand change over time from African heritage to uh, an attempt to impose a slave identity upon someone. And we get really rich details too, like physical descriptions, age or suspected age in most cases, descriptions of bodies that help us to identify whether or not someone might have been seen as very strong versus very frail, Uh, terms like artful, which uh, were cynical in their era, but signaled to us just how intelligent many of these runaways were. And so we have runaway advertisements, for example, that help us to, uh, if we read them and contextualize them carefully, do a bit more than just reading them on the face might suggest. But for the Great Dismal Swamp, I also had to engage in the company records, the, the slave holding company records, in order to get a sense of the day-to-day experience in the swamp, and mm-hmm. particularly the day-to-day tensions between resistance, as you mentioned earlier, dated daily patterns of very small forms of resistance by comparison to uh, somewhat larger forms of resistance. Like, this is going to sound kind of weird probably to a general audience, but enslaving companies and, and the agents who animated them used the language of having a day off or two days off on the weekend as this great sort of incentive that by Monday morning, no matter where the enslaved people went in the swamp, they were supposed to return to the slave labor camp and take up the forced labor again. And agents were baffled. 
that sometimes people just never return. (laughs) (laughs) Or can't imagine why. Or that they demanded other kinds of incentives like spirits or pork. Sure. Go figure, feed me, and (laughs) maybe I'll come back to slave labor, right? Like and so it's really developing a deep, rich, sometimes unexpected source base that uh, helps uh, historians of the enslaved to to engage rich stories, even as these stories are also the stories of of tragedy and exploitation. Just for my own clarification, you use, you said advertisements. These would be advertisements taken out when someone had self emancipated, when they had run away, not right. so, not like advertisement for sale. Well, sometimes or both. both. Or both. Okay. But the, the majority are runaway advertisements where, for example, someone absconds and the general custom was to wait uh, as, me- as long as two months uh, because enslaved people, let's face it, ran away quite often, more often than we, than we consider, uh, and oftentimes returned of their own volition uh, for a wide range of reasons. So freedom seeking sometimes really was an effort to escape, never to return to join a maroon community or to do all manner of things that would ultimately uh, steal back one's body from one's enslaver, steal back one's labor from one's enslaver. But just as commonly, enslaved people would abscond for a couple days, perhaps visit a nearby plantation where a family member or a love interest lived, and then return. Uh, Maybe face punishment, maybe not. But to take out a runaway advertisement was often a considerable expense for the enslaver. They had to pay the actual editor of the paper to run it uh, for the labor of essentially uh, pressing it into the pages of the paper. And so we have all of these different contextual elements to to consider that frankly, as, as, as I think your question implies, help us to build out the rich stories too. So yeah, yeah, these are runaway advertisements generally, but sometimes uh, advertisements in advance of a slave sale when someone escapes, trying not to be sold, of course, uh, which sometimes suggest, I think this person might try to abscond by water. So masters of all vessels, be warned, do not take mm-hmm. this person aboard. Or I believe that this person is lurking about the neighborhood. That's the actual refrain that I seize upon in City of Refuge, right? To mean, I think this person is probably in the woods near us or a county over or in the swamp. And sometimes they knew or assumed where they thought they were going, like a sector of the Great Dismal Swamp called Bear Swamp, where others were known to be. And so all of these small pieces of information appear in varying forms in a wide range of runaway advertisements that are generally no more than 10 or 15 lines uh, that run in a newspaper. And though they're not printed right away, that sometimes they're reprinted several months on helps us to understand that people remain on the land too. I've always been interested in the material culture when they talk about what they were wearing. Because that that always sort of, you know, if they were domestic, if they were working, you know, in in a mansion house or if they were, you know, working in the field, just knowing what they had, what they were wearing um, always interested me. And I also loved the fact I, I like that as a source they talk about they may have tried to go here, you know, for a family member. So it really it shows that they did have these rich lives. They're creating families. And it also sometimes answers the question of someone who is new to this field of study saying, well, why didn't they all just run away? What, why? And then you'll read an advertisement where, where some, an individual was sold and it says, we think they might have tried to run back to their old owner because right. that's where they have a family. Right, right, right. And so it, they're such rich sources. Right. And they're also frustratingly incomplete because yes. in 10 or 15 lines, some are a bit longer, but most are between 10 and 15 lines. The enslaver would generally only include information that he or sometimes she thought useful to those who might capture and return the advertised enslaved person. Right. I imagine they were and being so- charged by like the length of the posting right right, uh, right. Okay. And, and potentially multiple times if they had to run again and so these were on on their face aimed at an audience of uh essential neighbors who might intervene if they saw this person um but interestingly and and that's why broader source bases are are useful mm-hmm. because both times that i mentioned earlier 
the evidence that they are returned never appears in the newspaper because on the other side of this, in most cases, uh, an enslaver is not going to take up the expense of advertising that, hey, Tom ran away and he returned. So here's an advertisement to let you all know he's returned. Right. That, that doesn't happen. We know about the Toms from internal correspondence between agents of land companies, the Dismal Swamp Land Company, and company members who are also paying attention to enslaved people who are moving about the Great Dismal Swamp because it's in their enslaving company interest to also have eyes on the swamp in case Tom actually comes to one of their slave labor camps, for example. Right. Right. Um, Or in the case that Tom is owned by the company, uh, and this is actually the case in the early 1780s, at least one letter describes a company decision to sell him away from Virginia. And then the, the, the documentary record, unfortunately, goes silent because we, we don't have, at least existing that I've been able to find, any bill of sale or any other evidence that tells us when the sale was executed and to where and to whom he might have been sold. That's incredibly frustrating. <laughs> I want to Yes, it is. <laughs> and I yes, think what's so important here is, is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that most of the time, what we learn about enslaved people is always filtered, almost always filtered through the eyes of their enslavers. So they're not speaking for themselves. I'm saying in most cases, exactly that. Right. Yes, uh, they are not in most cases speaking for themselves. Now, there there are rich source bases, I should mention, such as uh, ex-slave narratives. Right. Um, but for most enslaved people, they never had the opportunity, uh, and I use that word contextually, Uh, Mm -hmm. to be engaged with someone who might capture what they dictate so that it could be published for abolitionist audiences, for example. Uh, And so, yes, and and even those sources, uh, I should recognize, are generally mediated too. Few were people like Frederick Douglass who learned to read and write with such uh, eloquence that he could speak for himself and publish for himself, right? And so, yes, these are mediated experiences that require a significant amount of historical context uh, and creative thinking too, frankly, in order to both document and also tell a rich history. Because historians, of course, are interested in documenting as much of the history as we possibly can, even as we tell these stories. And it's in that lurch sometimes that the lives of most enslaved people fall uh, because the sources are sparse, like frustratingly, yes. Isaac, frustratingly sparse. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> it's like archival hopping, which on the one hand is fun because I enjoy traveling different places and, and different libraries in the same state, frankly, or across the pond. That's all fun. But it, it's also a reality of, of the profession that you're, you're going from library to archive to library to archive and hoping to find a, a, pin, a, a needle in a haystack sometimes. And in most cases, you fail. Yeah. And you do. You do and if you have nothing to show for it. And yet That's you right. had to do it <clears throat> to show that it didn't exist. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, the, you know, the, the the great irony is that at the end of all of that hard work, someone like me gets to go and I'll, per- I'll segue this into you plugging your book. Go to, uh, you know, uh, an independent bookstore near me <laughs> and buy a book like yours and consume it over the course of a couple of days, <laughs> you know, yes. labors of years. Um, yes. But we're reaching the end of our conversation. Mark, can you tell uh, our audience um, what the title of your book is and, and where best they could find you and your work and stuff? Yeah, sure. First, uh, Isaac, let me say uh, thank you for, for making that suggestion that um, though historians labor for years to tell these stories that we tell, we really very much do appreciate that they are interesting in their final published form. So if you do read City of Refuge um, over a cup of coffee over a series of days, that makes me really happy because it hopefully introduces you to a corner of the nation and frankly, one of the early republic's most influential states that most people overlook. The book is available uh, on Amazon, um, but also by way of the University of Georgia Press's website, uh, ugapress.org, I believe, uh, or edu. Um, and Amazon, of course, you can find it in both places. And it was recently released in paperback uh, just a couple months ago. So it's even more accessible than it was. 
during the COVID year, which interrupted all our lives. I love a good paperback. And we'll, we'll, we'll include links to, uh, to, to this in uh, the description of the episode and on any postings about this particular episode if you are listening right now and are curious uh, and would like to buy it. Um, do you have any social media where people can find you? Do you are you are you a participant in historian Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> I am a Twitter historian, but I'm incredibly boring because I don't tweet much. Uh, but uh, you can find me at, at Mark Neve M A R C N E E V, all one word on Twitter. Um, I have an Instagram and all that other stuff, but I also have a link tree that I can send to you that nicely captures oh, all of those different links. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Marcus, I'd love to, uh, love to thank you for being with us today. Uh, you know, it was a great conversation as always. Yes, thank you so much. And for all the work you've done, I mean, from someone who's who's researched these communities, I understand how much went into what you do. And so thank you for your work and thank you for sharing it with us here today. Isaac, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, you always make me think on my toes, and that's really cool. <laughs> Lynn, it's, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure um, to, to engage with you as, as our work does cover quite similar ground. And, and I would love to keep the conversation going with you both. Yeah, and if absolutely, if, if anyone listening, if in the next couple of years you see a movie about maroons and the Great Dismal Swamp, you'll know whose work <laughs> is at the foundation of that. Thank yes. you again, Marcus. <laughs> Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. See you in two weeks for our next episode about Catherine and Nathaniel Green with Karen Bloom. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella. <laughs>